This week's episode of the Star Wars Report is brought to you by the good folks supporting us over on patreon.com slash Report. Let's do the show, folks. Gum, gum, gum. And who might you be? It's the Star Wars Report. Star Wars Report. Woo! Star Wars Report. The place for Star Wars news, features, interviews, and more. Then we can do something epic. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Please delete as appropriate. The Force. It's calling to you. Just let it in. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Star Wars Report podcast. I'm your host, Riley Blanton, and uh, we're back. We're back once again in our 2020 review of all things Star Wars, and specifically Star Wars Report. It's a look back at my favorite moments, um, and in this case, uh, my favorite interview of the year. Uh, years in the making, I would say, uh, with the one and only Michael Kaminsky, author of The Secret History of Star Wars. You guys know this from last week's episode. Uh, we're taking some time at the end of the year to relive uh, some of the best segments and moments and interviews of the of the podcast. So yeah, that's uh, that's the second part. Part one, though, coming up next is the one and only Dan Madsen, uh, original fan club president, uh, one of the founders of Star Wars Celebration, and has just been in the trenches of Star Wars fandom since the dawn of the internet era. So a fantastic interview with Dan. I had a great time on both of these interviews. Um, they're some of my favorite moments of the podcast this year. So I hope if you haven't heard them originally, uh, I hope you enjoy them. If you heard them originally, they're both so packed with so much great insight. Uh, I hope you get a chance to listen to them again. We'll be back with the regular podcast starting in the new year. So uh, without further ado, uh, it's Dan Matson on the Star Wars Report podcast. You're listening to the Star Wars Report. Faster, more intense. All right, everybody, we've got on the line, uh, on the other side... Uh, well, of the Skype machine, anyway. It's Mr. Uh, Mr. Dan Madsen. How's it going, Dan? I'm good, Riley. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for uh, coming on the Star Wars Report. I'm looking forward to chatting. I am, too. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Now, so uh, I'm guessing a large percentage of our listeners are already familiar with, if not you, certainly your work um, with uh, the Star Wars fan club, with her universe, with um, with Star Wars Celebration, like you have been deeply embedded in Star Wars fandom for for a long time. I have, in fact, uh, I go way back to being a fourteen year old and being a fan like everybody else, and seeing Star Wars: A New Hope uh, in the theaters and going absolutely crazy over it, and plastering my bedroom walls with posters of Darth Vader and Han Solo and uh, Princess Leia and and uh, and it was um, because of that passion that ultimately led me to uh, Lucasfilm many years later to uh, to um, get the license to do the official fan club. And, uh, and it's been a an amazing journey, Riley, over all these years. I was going to ask, like, what was the was that the very first thing that you did with Lucasfilm was the fan club? It was. Yeah, it was. You know, I started out. Um, with Star Trek, actually, I was a big Star Trek fan as a child, as a teenager, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started a fan club, which came to the attention of 
Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry and Paramount Studios and uh, became the first official Star Trek fan club and started doing a, a newsletter, which turned into a magazine. And it was because of that that um, I got Star Wars and Lucasfilm. Um, George Lucas and Howard Rothman, they had a licensing at the time, had seen what I was doing with Star Trek. And they were closing down the official Star Wars fan club in-house after Return of the Jedi. And -hmm. I think it had been closed down about a year when um, they saw what I was doing for Star Trek. And it kind of dawned on them that, well, we're not doing the fan club in-house, but what if we license it to Dan outside and see what he can do with it? And so I had to put a whole presentation together and fly out to Skywalker Ranch and and do everything to uh, convince them that it was a good choice, and I did, and got the license, and um, became kind of, you might say, an outside arm of Lucasfilm. I uh, had access to just about everything you were literally working on the inside of Lucasfilm, except uh, it was my own company, and I was working out of Colorado, and we launched the official Lucasfilm fan club, um, and we decided to call it Lucasfilm because there were no plans to do any new Star Wars movies at this time. This was in 1987. I was going to ask, so this is right. Or we're talking just barely after the, the, the glow of Return of the Jedi settled down and Skywalker Ranch had just gotten off the ground. That is correct. That is right. And uh, And so at that point, what was on Lucasfilm's plate was uh, Willow. Mm-hmm. and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And so in my discussions with uh, everyone at Lucasfilm, we all decided that, well, maybe we should, instead of relaunching it as the Star Wars fan club again, we should do it as the Lucasfilm fan club, and we could cover all these new projects they're working on because uh, there really wasn't anything new on the horizon for Star Wars. and. Mm. I you know, said, well, I could at least do a Star Wars feature every issue. And they said, yes, of course. But um, And so that's how it got launched. And we, we, uh, we literally launched it at the 10th anniversary convention out in Los Angeles. Uh, had a table there, and that's where I really um, kind of uh, started signing up people and handing out flyers and just trying to get everybody to be aware that the fan club was back, but this time we were covering everything under the sun that was Lucasfilm, not just Star Wars. Mm. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, we were running the fan club during some of the lean years of, of Lucasfilm when there wasn't a whole lot to cover, quite frankly. I was going to say, yeah, because that's – I mean, I guess even Indiana Jones was kind of on the down, downward slope at that time. It, it was. That was the last movie. Uh, at, at that time, it was considered – it was planned to be the last indie movie. Was there a sense that, and, and and you actually know, I've never had the opportunity, as many years as I've done Star Wars Report, to, to talk to anyone about that 10-year anniversary convention. Was, was how, would, how did that become a thing? Because that, that's really pretty in the center of the sort of dead zone. It's like a couple years before Heir to the Empire comes, comes out. That's and sort right. of the famous beginning of star wars resurgence into the, into the pop culture so i never never really asked anyone about that 10th anniversary convention like whose idea was that because that's i mean even george at the time as i understand was was pretty removed from from star wars he was yeah he was um it was actually um 
Lucasfilm's idea, they they teamed up with a company called Creation Entertainment, who at the time was doing a lot of Star Trek conventions, in fact. Um, and they decided for maybe the 10th anniversary that they should do something for the fans. Um, and so um, Creation and Lucasfilm teamed up to do this convention out in Los Angeles. And I don't even recall which hotel it was held at now out in L.A. Um, but um, it it had a good turnout and uh, had guests, uh, obviously. And uh, it was the the one time and only time that Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, met George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars. And Gene came out on stage um, and surprised George. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, shook his hand and congratulated him on the 10th anniversary. And uh, it was in our fan club that uh, the one and only really photograph that's ever been put out there in the public um, was taken. And um, it's out there on the Internet all over the place. Uh, George and Gene meeting for the very first time, the the two kings of the of the star franchises, and um, yeah, it was I think three days. They had props. I remember um, archive area there where you could come and see some of the miniatures and ships and things from the Star Wars films. Um, it was it was like a little mini cre- um, celebration. Yeah. Um, is what it was. Not quite. Not not as well done. Um, it wasn't. Um, it. I know that Lucasfilm wasn't really overly happy with it, and so uh, that's why I think it took a while for them to even think about doing something else again down the line. But um, was it too? It, was it just the format following the the start? Because at the time, Star Trek conventions. Um, and when it's it's really hard, I think, for some of us, especially like me, who grew up the first convention I went to, the first big convention was Star Wars Celebration. So it's hard to imagine, right. but I, I just from what I know of, it had to be so different because the idea of Star Trek conventions or any kind of nerd type convention was a uh, a niche. It, now now we call them popular culture deven- uh, conventions because that's what they are. The subject material is now part of popular culture but it wasn't the case back that's then right. i could i could see because star wars is never really that's one thing i guess that maybe differentiated it maybe that's something that lucasfilm wasn't quite satisfied with that time because they were trying to I, I would imagine fit into the mold of conventions at the time which just doesn't really fit for what star wars is that's exactly right riley you're you're right on it's uh it was really um the format of a star trek convention but uh, done for Star Wars, and um, and that's that's pretty much the feel of it. Um, and it was um, it was it it was successful for what it was at the time. And uh, you know, I mean, it was really unheard of because there had never been a Star Wars convention. Everybody knew of all the the Star Trek conventions that were held all over the country. Yeah. Um, but uh, there had never been a Star Wars convention, and. Um, so yeah, it was you know, it, it didn't have the quality of the celebrations. Now, I mean, the celebrations now make that convention look <laughs> like amateur and professional, quite frankly. Yeah. But it was intimate and it was small, and um, and it was the one, first one that had ever been held. So uh, yeah, and and we were there to uh, to launch the fan club again 
relaunched the fan club, I should say. Yeah. Um, at that event, we had a table right out in the main, the main hall, right there before you entered into the um, the main ballroom where all the big guests and everything were to take place. So, in order to get in there, you had to come past the the table for the new relaunch of the fan club. That's awesome. Well, and so fast forward, I guess it's uh, twenty years. Um, just mm-hmm. about the, the where does the the idea come for Star Wars celebration? That was that was something that it's interesting because we had been talking about within my company, which was then was called Fantastic Media, and we were running the official Star Wars and Star Trek fan clubs mm. out of Denver, Colorado here, um, and we had been talking internally about you know wow there should really be a we should really do some sort of a special event now that Star Wars is being relaunched. It's all you know all this new prequels that are coming out and. Lo and behold, out of the blue, I get a call from Steve Sansquit, who at the time was working with Lucasfilm. And he said, Dan, we've been talking here, and we we think a fan event should be done. We really think we should do something to kind of kick off this new era of Star Wars. Um, and we really think it's the, the fan club is the one that should do it. And I said, well, Steve, ironic that you should call, because we've been talking about the same thing. So we made – an appointment, and I had several of my team members uh, with me fly out to Skywalker Ranch, and we sit down at a big conference table with Steve and head of licensing, Howard Rothman, and all the others, and uh, and um, hashed out what kind of an event this would be. Um, you know, at the time, we didn't want to call it a convention. We wanted some other name or title for it. Henceforth, Celebration came up, and... Um, and so we started kind of putting together a blueprint of what we all thought it should be. I took that blueprint, brought it back to Denver, sat down with my team, and um, really just from, you know, the literally built it from the ground up as to what we should do, how we would market it, um, where it should be held. Did you have and that was uh, uh, sorry, I was, did you have a template? Did you have like, oh, they're doing it right, we want to do that? Or was this just like from the ground up from scratch. What was it like in the room when you guys were talking it over? From scratch, because we didn't want it to be uh, like a Star Trek convention. We wanted this to be an event of on a much bigger scale. Mm. Um, and so we we threw out what was at the time, you know, the kind of the, the, the plan of what a convention was, a sci-fi convention or a Star Trek convention, and said, you know, this needs to be something really big and a, more of an event type thing. Um, and so we literally built it from the, from the ground up. And, um, you know, we had a lot of discussions as to where it should be held. We talked about Los Angeles. We talked about New York. We talked about Chicago. Um, and ultimately, I kept saying we should do it in Denver because if I'm going to do it and that's where my whole team is, and at that time I had – just a little over a hundred employees working for me, and I knew all the volunteers and people who worked at all of our local conventions in the Denver metro area. Mm. And I said, you know, I can keep a better hand on it, and I can can get the bodies to help work it if we do it in Denver. And Denver is centrally located in the country, um, and so after you know discussions and discussions. Uh, Lucasfilm agreed that uh, the, Denver would be the place to do it, and um, 
And then, you know, the problem with it was is that this was just about a year out as to when all of this came oh, man. Uh, to our attention. So we really didn't have a long time to plan this thing out. And um, a lot of events, you know, had already booked a lot of uh, the locations here in the Denver area. Like our, our we had the big convention um, area here. But it had already been booked for the dates that Lucasfilm wanted us to hold the convention on. And um, they were kind of adamant that they wanted it to be held on those dates. Um, so I started panicking a little bit. I started thinking, well, I went everywhere. Nobody had anything open. And that's when we came up with the Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum uh, here in, in Denver, which uh, was a giant hangar on a former Lowry Air Force base that had all of these vintage aircraft in it, but it had a, they were starting to hold events in this big um, hangar. Mm -hmm. And we said, well, well, we could build these big giant, I would almost describe as circus tents, out in the parking lot area, and those could be the main stages. So if we can't have it all under one roof, that would be the next best thing to do. And I had to you know, have Lucasfilm fly out and tour the whole facility and look at this and look at that and discuss with me what they w thought we needed to do. And we had to spend some money fixing up the hangar because there were some, uh, some areas of it that didn't look so good. So we spent money to have that all fixed up. And, um, uh, ultimately they agreed to go ahead and do it, uh, at the uh, wings over the Rockies air and space museum. And, you know, at the time we planned it, Riley, mm -hmm. never in my wildest dreams, did I imagine that on the very weekend that we would do the event, that we would have the worst rainstorm in a hundred years in Denver? It never dawned on me, um, and I don't think it dawned on Lucasfilm either, um, because it, uh, it was the end of uh, um, April, beginning of May, and uh, while we do have some rain in Colorado at that time, nothing like what we we. <laughs> <laughs> at that time and it literally it literally was it was it's down on on historically recorded now as the worst the most rain that denver's ever gotten in a 48 hour period was on the weekend that we held mm. celebration one so it's uh it's kind of known as the uh, star wars woodstock because <laughs> all the fans survived it through the mud and the rain and and uh it's legend. Like, Still enjoyed it. Everyone I've talked to it, who, um, you know, me having entered the, my first celebration was all the way at uh, Celebration 5. And, right. Um, and I, I still, but whenever I talk to fans who are at the OG event um, at Celebration 1, that's it. They, they do they talk about it like Woodstock. It's this, like, this moment <laughs> in time, right, before the Phantom Menace. Um, like, you guys, and, and you guys, the hunger... Yeah, we just have to put context on this even more so, I would say, than the Force Awakens of recent memory. The hunger totally. for for Phantom Menace had to be insane. So just the fact that you guys were holding that the convention at that time, right before the movie came out, I mean, we, it had to be nuts. We, I have never seen, and I, I, I'll be honest, I don't think there will ever be another time like that period of time prior those several years up to Episode One. The the excitement and the buzz 
was palpable. You could you could just feel it. Everything we were doing between the Star Wars Insider and all the merchandising that was starting to come out and the plans and preparations for Celebration 1, I had never seen nor experienced and nor will I ever again experience that kind of anticipation and excitement in the Star Wars community. You know, I mean, everybody had been so hungry for something new with Star Wars. You know, uh, we had the three original movies and, you know, the holiday special and Ewok shows. But, you know, as far as major feature films, you know, those three movies were it. So the fact that Star Wars was coming back to the movie screens, it it was um, astronomical. I've never experienced anything like it. And even the time building up to The Force Awakens, it, it still did not compare to that time moving into um, The Phantom Menace. This episode of the Star Wars Report podcast is brought to you by Prime Gaming. Prime Gaming is free with your Amazon Prime membership. Right now, you can claim over 30 games that are yours to keep forever, anything from retro and indie gems to the biggest titles. You can also claim exclusive in-game offers for popular titles across PC, console, and mobile, including Roblox, League of Legends, Assassin's Creed, and Star Wars Squadrons. Make a choice. Fly with the New Republic. Change our galaxy for the better. Fall Guys, Ultimate Knockout, and Destiny 2, with new offers released each week. And if you're a Twitch fan, you'll love the chance to support your favorite streamer with a free monthly Twitch TV channel subscription. To learn more about this month's free offers with Prime Gaming, head over to gaming.amazon.com. So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And, and to put on that event at that time, it was two weeks approximately before the movie came out. And... Um, the excitement of those people waiting just to see anything. Um, and we had some of the first footage that they got to see there. We had mostly um, all uh, episode one cast members and production people there at the event. That's what Lucasfilm really wanted. They wanted uh, all of the new era of Star Wars people to be there, um, along with Anthony Daniels, of course, who we can talk about in a little bit, who was so essential to that first event um but um yeah it uh i i'll never experience anything like that time period in star wars history it was unique it was um the first time and uh i i can't even fathom that there will be another time even going forward from here that there will be that kind of excitement and buzz and anticipation as there was in that year prior to um, yeah. episode one opening. It's a it's a moment in culture that uh, I, I still remember because I, I grew up um, primarily overseas. We moved back, to, my family moved back to the States in, in 2001. So, but I do remember being in the States the summer of 99. And I, I didn't even see the movie that summer, but I just remember going over to a friend's house, Dan, and he had every single freaking Pepsi can collected in his bedroom. Uh, <laughs> and I just feel like, I, and I remember as a kid marveling at all the different characters and asking, is this a good, I, I was eight years old. I was like, is this a good guy or bad guy? Is this a good guy or bad guy? And I'd always guess wrong because like a lot of the ugly ones are still good guys. And yep. <laughs> so, but like that, that, that little moment, like it's, it's like emblazoned in my brain as a kid, even though I was just for a sliver of what, you know, popular culture was all about summer 99 we had we had i mean pepsi was at the event they had big giant inflatable oh, yeah. <laughs> pepsi cans with the uh 
with the uh, the Star Wars characters on them, you know, uh, just like they they look in the stores with the the small actual Pepsi cans. Um, and Lego was there building uh, a giant uh, spaceship, Star Wars ship, um, under a big tent. Um, and um, so yeah, and you know Hasbro, um, this was the first place that you could buy. Uh, some of the, the new episode one action figures. So you can imagine the line <laughs> to get in. We set up an entire room that was inside of the hangar that was basically the store. Um, and people were only allowed to buy, I think, one of each figure. Mm. Um, and Hasbro sent certain ones. I, I don't even remember which figures were made available, but that was the first place you could get them. And so the excitement around the collectability mm. of coming and getting those figures for the very first time, yeah. you know, before they were in any of the stores. Um, and it's funny because I remember uh, after the, the last night of the convention or, or the celebration, I should say, um, and all of our crews were cleaning up and putting everything away. And I went to dinner with my, with my good friend. And as we went to the restaurant, we had to drive right past the Toys R Us. And out the line, all the way around the building, out into the parking lot. <laughs> that was the night that the figures were going to become available uh, at Toys R Us. Mm. And I just remember thinking, oh, my gosh, look at that line. And at midnight, everyone was going to be let in, and they're going to be able to buy all of those new Hasbro Star Wars Episode One toys and figures and such. But the first ones people were able to get at Star Wars Celebration 1. Dang. It's, um, yeah, Midnight mad Madness. It became a, Midnight a, a madness. thing. Um, There's a whole thing. I, I'm curious, what, because um, we all sort of as fandom remember what it was like, but since you had the rare opportunity to be working closely with Lucasfilm at the time, what was what was it like kind of on the other side of the fence as the company's getting ready to return to start? Was there the same level of passion and, and, and excitement in that sort of moment before any any backlash or anything like that? Completely. I mean, everybody was so excited. I remember going out um, the year before the movie opened to Skywalker Ranch and they had a, a licensing summit um, for episode one. So all the licensees came out and um, we all got together, talked about, you know, they showed a whole marketing plan of, you know, what the plan was as far as episode one and then episode two and three and and launching the merchandising lines, and then we all got to go to the theater there and got to see, I think, about 15 minutes of footage from episode one, and it was just, the crowd was going crazy. I mean, we they basically showed us the entire pod racing scene. <laughs> nice. Um, and, and, you know, just seeing that alone by itself was pretty incredible because, you know, it, it was amazing to watch that whole thing. And just to sit there and actually see something new from star wars on the big screen every single one of those licensees were just you know screaming and yelling and, and you know, at the top of their lungs how excited they were um but yeah you know especially one of the things i tried to always do in my company was to hire people who were fans because i knew that if they loved what they were doing they would do it even better and so we had um Star Wars fans and Star Trek fans that were working at our at our fantastic media, and I had a call center um, where people would call in one eight hundred True Fan, and that's how they could order, 
you know, any of the product in the Star Wars Insider or subscribe to it or renew their, their membership to the Star Wars fan club. And um, I can remember, you know, we, I think we had about 30 call center people there. Mm. They were so pumped and excited and people were just calling uh, just and they would before they'd even place their order. They would just sit there for two or three minutes just talking about how exciting it was to be a Star Wars fan right now. Now, this was the new era, and everybody was just couldn't wait for uh, new Star Wars films to come out. And, oh, my God, they were just wanting to order everything that you could possibly order on it. And uh, it was just – it was a fun time, and people at Lucasfilm were excited about it. They were, you know, wow, you know, this is – we're back in the Star Wars business again, basically, you know, mm-hmm. after really lying dormant for so long. Um and I think a lot of people there, when I first took over running the fan club, I would go out, I don't know, periodically and do interviews with George Lucas in his office there at Skywalker Ranch. And I would, every time, you know, I always had a question every time I talked to him. Well, what's happening with Star Wars? You know, <laughs> do you have any plans on doing new Star Wars? And it seemed like every time he'd say, well, I plan on getting back to it. You know, he says sometime soon he goes i i don't know when but i i plan on getting back to it you know and every time i'd kind of come back crestfallen thinking ah oh, you know he <laughs> every time he tells me he's going to get back to it but he never does you know it's like when when are you going to get back to it you know and so when the first little trickle of word came into me that george actually was sitting down to write a mm. screenplay and i thought okay now he's getting serious. Something's actually happening. And mm-hmm. each over the course of the years prior to episode one, I kept getting little pits of information and this is now happening and this is now happening. And uh, it was just it was exciting from all sides of the of the of the um, picture because people at Lucasfilm, people in my company, we were all getting excited. And then when the word hit to the public oh my gosh everything mm. just went do you, crazy do you remember the moment like when you first got wind that um the prequels were happening yeah i had a call from howard rothman the head of licensing mm. and he said i've got some really good news for you and i was kind of sitting down in my office and i thought oh please 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 let this be please please and he said george is is actually starting on Star Wars. We're getting back to doing episode one, and here's when we expect to start filming on it. We expect to have it out in 1999. And I remember just just being floored. I just thought I've been waiting for this for years, mm. and not only as a fan, but as someone who had a business interest in it, running the fan club. And I thought I I just I can't believe that I'm actually hearing these words now that they're starting. It's actually production is going to be starting, you know, pre-production, working on the storyboards and the art. And very early on, I became good friends with Rick McCallum, mm. uh, who was producer, um, because I worked with Rick on the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Um, I had been doing the Lucasfilm Fan Club magazine, and I started covering the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles because that was one of the new things yeah. they were working on. And I was asked to write the book on the making of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, so I, I agreed to do that. And so I got to know Rick McCallum very well as a result of both of those things. 
And when I heard at the Licensee Summit that Rick McCallum was now going to be producer on the Star Wars prequels, I was like, well, there you go. I already know him, you know, and uh, that's great because I knew I had an in with him already. Um, and so it uh, it was pretty exciting to um, to actually get to have access to him because he was a lot more open about what was going on than George was. George was pretty closed mouth, but Rick would tell me everything and uh, well, some things that were meant for print and some that weren't. <laughs> well, Rick famous was famous for that. He's like an old school. We, we just ta- um, uh, a couple weeks ago, we were talking to uh, J.W. Rensler and he was kind of yeah. talking about the same era of Lucasfilm and, and he described Rick as, as very, like he's a traditional Hollywood producer. Yep. Um, which... Yep, absolutely. And he... He invited me out to the ranch um, to come see what they were working on uh, uh, prior to um, – way before they even started production. And so I got to go out, and there was this room at the top of the main house where George's office is. And you, he took me up the stairs, and he had to do a special knock to get in the door. <laughs> and you did a special knock to get in the door. And you open the door, and it's like going into Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory as I come in. There's Doug Chang, and he's working on some of the storyboard art and some of the original concept designs. And there's the bust of the of a of a um, of Jar Jar Binks and what he might look like. It wasn't exactly formed yet. Um, and so, and then there's all these little models of some of the new ships and uh, and some of the sketches and designs for all the new characters. I saw the very first drawing of what they thought Darth Maul might look like. Um, and, you know, I'm just sitting trying to take this all in, not only as the head of the fan club and where all this could come into play for the fan club and the magazine and everything, but as a fan, I'm just sitting there thinking, I can't believe I'm here. I'm just looking around thinking, I can't believe I'm seeing all of this stuff. Um, and then he sat down and showed me some of the early CG stuff they had done with special effects and everything and you know and then as we walked out i mean i spent probably an hour and a half in there talking to everybody and doug and everybody and asking them you know what are you doing how are you doing this you know what's the idea behind this character and uh, and then as i walked out you know he closes the door and rick says now you can't say anything about this to anybody and i'm like uh okay and uh <laughs> i realized i thought man I can't spill the beans to anybody. This is going to drive me crazy. And I didn't for the longest time. That's that's amazing. And it's uh, I you you paint the picture so well, Dan. I appreciate kind of just getting an idea of of what that time was like because as a kid who like the first Star Wars movie I ever saw was The Phantom Menace. And I have that sort of nostalgia of of remembering that time and the first time I saw the movie and I I knew what a big deal Star Wars was. So the fact that Phantom Menace was my entry point kind of elevates it in my own sort of Star Wars nostalgia. So it, I really appreciate the kind of uh, picture that you paint. At the same time, I'm of the of the generation that I was, you know, quote unquote, the right age when I saw it and, and loved the movie. But uh, I just want a frankly honest question. I feel like it's often talked to death in some ways online about the prequels and the backlash about the prequels. And we've kind of even forgotten that conversation in the midst of all the Disney movies and everybody's opinions on them. And, but I actually, I I would love to ask you, was there in, especially as someone who's running the fan club, like as far as you're pretty much as close as you can get to the fandom itself. 
Do you think that some of the Phantom Menace backlash, was that born out of the core Star Wars fandom, or was that more out of film media and then, I guess, later internet media? Well, I think it was born out of some of the um, film media, but but it was definitely it definitely came from the fans too because um you know from just looking at from for instance you know we as 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 sort of speak star wars central yeah. um at that time i mean we were doing the official fan club we were doing the magazine the star wars insider and we were doing all of the fulfillment for the star wars website i mean we we started when StarWars.com first launched. They started a store there, you know, a shop StarWars.com or whatever. Yeah, this is before the Amazon, was, guys. <laughs> yes, exactly. And we did all the fulfillment because we had already been carrying all of the product. And we had four huge warehouses filled with all of the new Episode One product. And so it made sense that, you know, the orders would be – directly sent to us off of the website and we would fulfill everything. Um, and I mean, prior to the movie coming out, sales were just astronomical. Mm. I, I couldn't, we couldn't keep some of the stuff in stock. And within a week or two after the movie opened, sales dropped dramatically. Mm. Now, part of that was not just because people didn't want it as much. Part of that was because that product was everywhere. Every Walmart, every Target, I mean, every yeah. mom and pop shop at the at the local Walgreens, at the at the gas station, they had Star Wars Episode One product here, there, everywhere, and so we were competing with all of these people, and we couldn't compete in price with somebody like Walmart and Target because they'd order them such bigger quantities than we could. They could get a better price on them. But nevertheless, we started seeing sales drop, um, and uh, I think it was because people were not as enthralled with the movie uh, after they had seen it, and they thought, "Well, I need to go back and see it several times to see if I like it as much." And then, you know, the film media started, you know, really dropping on it, you know, and talking yeah. about it in, in negative terms, um, and it was very painful to hear some of the the criticism. Mm. Of it, I, I, you know, I mean, I loved the movie, um, and uh, it was very painful to hear some of the criticism about it. Uh, and you know, oh my gosh, this is what we've waited all this time for. This is the return of Star Wars, and they were really brutal at at some point, you know, and talking about you know Jar Jar Binks and yeah, um, you know, really being brutal about you know his character and. Um, in fact, I, even then they were calling, you know, him a racist, racist, you know, in the way he talked and walked and everything. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it, it, um, it was hard to hear all of that. And, uh, um, well, you know, we, famously, we suffered from the, uh, the lack of interest in sales of all the product that we had to invest in as a result of that. Yeah. I mean, famously now looking back, uh, I mean, uh, different, um, not just George. George talked about it a little bit later on, but um, even like Ahmed Best has been very public about yeah. how some of the backlash has affected him over the years, but professionally and personally. And it's it is it puts a different context on it than I'm sure it felt to some fans. But it, maybe I think it really does play right into what you were talking about just before, 
which is it, it, it was a unique time where no movie had ever received that level of hype, nor nor ever will again, probably. Well, and you know, you're absolutely right, Riley. And the other thing about that is when you think about the absolute amazing hype and excitement and buzz and anticipation, I don't know that any movie could have lived up to those expectations. I mean, everybody who had had, who had, who was, had loved the Star Wars films, watched them so many times, you know, they were part of their life. And here comes this new movie for Star Wars. I don't know how any movie could have lived up to those expectations. Um, and the interesting thing to me is that today, I really believe that The Phantom Menace holds up better than a lot of than the other two prequel movies. Um, mm-hmm. I think it it's a beautiful movie to look at. I think it has some of the best lightsaber duels in any of the Star Wars films. Um, and the music, I mean, you know, John Williams' music um, is just brilliant in, in episode one. Um, and so I think that people are looking at it a little kinder today. Um, For sure. They're not criticizing it quite as much um, because I think the movie holds up over time. Does it have its issues and its problems? Absolutely it does. But I still think that episode one, um, I personally think it holds up better than some of the other films. You're listening to the Star Wars Report. It's against my programming to impersonate a deity. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've got him on. I'm so excited to be uh, having as a guest for the first time here on the Star Wars Report podcast, the author of The Secret History of Star Wars. It's Mr. Michael Kaminsky. How's it going, man? Not bad. How are you doing? You know, I um, we were talking just for a second when the when the call started about uh, how excited I am to talk to you about, about this book and this project because, and, I, and I'll just tell you right here, it's it's really a work of of research and in depth in terms of the Star Wars creative process and George Lucas's story that's unparalleled that just hadn't been done hitherto mm-hmm. unknown and and it's not uh, frankly it's not well known enough within the Star Wars community um I only this past year had a chance to 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 actually go through the the whole book I listened to the audiobook and um, loved it so much and wanted to reference it. I ordered the, um, the uh, all all beautiful 600 pages uh, mm-hmm. right here. So, Michael, welcome to the program. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, I, I'll just jump right off the bat. What's the what's the genesis of this project? I know that it's it was a long time kind of passion project of yours, but what was the genesis of yeah. you wanting to like actually chronicle the the full making of the full genesis of Star Wars? Well, basically. Um, number one, at that time, George Lucas was sort of trying to rewrite history in some ways. He was telling a very different story of the genesis of Star Wars. And I was like, well, you know, people are going to take him at face value because, you know, he's the guy that wrote it. And you're going to question him. But I'm like, but no, like if you go into the, you know, the documents and the, the scripts themselves and the interviews he had earlier, it's a totally different picture. And so I knew that, you know, I, I and I had spent years, years, like my entire teenage years, and even after I started writing the book, just 
tracking down these obscure books and uh, magazines on eBay and stuff. Spent hundreds of dollars on eBay. Uh, thank God back then that stuff was relatively cheap. But it basically, it was the type of book that I, as a fan, always wanted to exist. Hmm. But it didn't. It, but it didn't exist. And I wasn't confident that anyone would ever write it because I wasn't confident that anyone else was as nuts about this stuff as I was. And so I was like, well, I guess I have to write it. <laughs> and it was kind of as simple as that. But it didn't start out as a book. It was going to be like, I don't know, like a website or, a, you know, some kind of blog post. Hmm. And as I started getting into it, I realized that in order to explain certain things, you had to explain certain other background things in order to put that into context. And before you know it, it was like 60, 70 pages long. And I was like, uh, I think this might be a book because I realized I was like not, not even halfway to the end of the first draft. First draft was about 200 pages. Final draft was in, in the computer file. It's like 800 and something. So it grew quite a bit over the drafts. I did about six drafts. So, so but yeah, basically at the end of the day, it was the, the book that I as a fan – wanted to exist. The closest thing was uh, Laurent Bozero's um, The Annotated Screenplays book. Mm. But that's like, there, there's not that much commentary in there. I mean, what there is in there is great, but it's very uh, light. It's, it's mainly a transcription of the scripts. Yeah. And then with a little commentary on the side about the early drafts and stuff. So that was one thing. But I'm like, no, this needs to be like a full-on specialty book. Yeah. And because that's what I want. And, uh, I, you know, no one else is going to write it if I don't. Well, how, all right. If you don't mind me asking, like, so this was like high school age when you started compiling all this stuff? Well, I mean, um, like Dale Pollock's Skywalking. Are you familiar with that book? It's the first, I, I read that book when I was 10 years old. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I read the annotated screenplays when I was 15 years old and I read the early drafts when I was 16 years old and, I started collecting newspaper articles. I had a whole scrapbook, believe it or not, of uh, when the prequels were coming out. There'd always be an interview with George Lucas in the paper or a review or an article. And I'd cut them out and I'd put them into a literal scrapbook. Um, So I started collecting this stuff very early on. And then I started getting uh, interested in some of the early interviews and I bought lots of books with that. And so I had all this material going in once I started and I had there was all kinds of online articles at that time, and then uh, so I had enough sources to sort of get started, and I knew what I was missing. And so, as I was writing the drafts, I'm like, I need some source of information on this thing, and I would eventually find out where it was. So the problem is, that stuff is all out there to find, but how do you know what to look for, right? You have to know yeah. what you're looking for in the first place. So it was a lot of like going through old magazines and like looking at their list of sources, their bibliography and going, Oh man, look, I didn't know these sources existed. And so then I would, you know, that's how you do research as an academic. You look at the list of sources that um, a really good author has used. And then you track those sources down and you look at their sources and you just go down this rabbit hole of finding this really cool, obscure stuff. Now, so, uh, cause I, and I, I'm only familiar, and I and I became familiar with Skywalking. And listen, I've done I've done this podcast for many many years, but it's 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 odd that Star Wars has sort of been certainly in the Disney era, but I would say even in the prequel era, constantly trapped by the starvation for new new information, new novels, new movies, new TV shows. It's yeah. there's a whole industry behind 
um, Star Wars product as it's come out. And so yeah. it's it's difficult to find, until very recent history, um, reflective uh, and research-based information on the making of these films. Like, you, you kind of gave the whole list right there. You had um, Skywalking, which Dale Pollock famously, as I understand... He did the the biography, but George wasn't necessarily the biggest fan of it, um, and yeah, he never did anything tried, like that I again. I spoke with him, and uh, George Lucas tried to sue him for defamation. Oh wow! And he's like, he's like, well, everything I wrote is true. None of the quotes are made up. As he re- tape recorded everything, he's like, here, here's the tape recorder. Look, this is you saying this. What are you talking about? He just he's very sensitive to criticism, and so he didn't like. I, I think it's a very balanced and very fair book. I don't think it paints him in a negative light at all, other mm. than. You know, it points out some flaws and some negative things, but like, yeah, it's not a publicity piece. Like, come sure, on. yeah, it's, it's it's real journalism, and that kind of gets to the core of your book and 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 the way we look at Star Wars in general. The idea of the publicity piece versus is the the real raw and tough uh, element of of storytelling and and how that process mm-hmm. works. And and I, I have to, what were some of the the central contradictions or mysteries in the making of Star Wars that that because uh, it's a very thorough book, but like when you're initially trying to actually wade through all of it, what was the the burning desire that uh, the questions that you wanted answers? Well, I, I already knew the answers. I just had to go about proving it. Mm. And the main one was at that time, uh, this was around the time of Revenge of the Sith it had just come out. And so people are like, oh, it's finally the end of the story has been told. And George Lucas was saying, yeah, it was originally one script that was 300 pages. And it was about the redemption of Darth Vader. And he was the father. And then I had to cut it into three pieces. And then I had to make a back. It's like, no, that's not at, at all what happened. <laughs> and so the main thing was like he was trying to pass off that Darth Vader was always the father. That he had this one giant script that was basically – all of the original trilogy, which is partially true in some sense, because some of the set pieces that were cut from the original script were later reused, like the Ewok yeah. uh, thing and yeah. um, some other parts. But uh, that's about it. Uh, it's just reusing old ideas. And he's done that on Indiana Jones as well. There was a Minecraft uh, minecart chase at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It, they couldn't fit it in the film, so they moved it to Temple of Doom. Mm. But you couldn't say, oh, I had Temple of Doom planned out when I wrote Raiders. All It was one big script. It's like, no, you just reused an old idea and shuffled things around. Um, yeah. So that was – I knew that. And I knew, like, just read the early drafts. You, that's all you have to do to prove it, that he's just mm. – uh, it's a, like a publicity thing, basically. Um, to You know, I don't know. I think that's originally how it started. It started around um, – I guess the late 70s or around the time that they were making Empire Strikes Back where they started saying, um, I think it was in Bantha Tracks in 1978. That's the Lucasfilm newsletter back in the day. It was, um, there's back then they were saying there's 12 films. And they was like, uh, not only is there 12 films, we have the story mapped out. Now that we have the story mapped out, we actually have scripts written for them. We're ready to go. And so it was basically a publicity thing ah. uh, when the reality was they had no idea. They had plans for 12 films, but the concept of that was like they hadn't really beyond a few vague ideas. They hadn't really thought of anything. Well, for for the listeners I, I, and, and, and for me, I think walk through the fundamental because we always have like seen articles or, you know, as fans have talked amongst each other about the the 12 episodes versus the nine mm-hmm. episodes versus the three versus the six. What is the actual... Um, 
I, I guess, in short, uh, evolution that George had after Star Wars becomes the mass success it is in 77. When, what, what is that actual evolution? So he had the actors. He had um, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher under contract for three films. So he knew for sure he was going to have a trilogy. Um, and then after Star Wars was – and they actually wrote the sequel – uh, to Star Wars. It's called Splinter of the Mind's Eye yep, by yep. Alan Dean Foster. And they turned it into a novel. And the idea was um, that's why Han Solo's not in it because Harrison Ford wasn't under contract. Um, and it uh, was meant to reuse a lot of the props and models and special effects uh, paraphernalia from Star Wars. So there's like a Y-Wing. And, and a lot of the ideas eventually made their way into Empire Strikes Back and into Indiana Jones into Raiders of the Lost Ark because it's all about an archaeological dig and instead of the Nazis, it's the Empire and there's, you know, the race against time to get this valuable mm. artifact. So it's actually very much like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, so that was really that was written before Star Wars was released and they were going to release it as a novel first and then adapt it into a screenplay. And then of course Star Wars is a huge hit, and so Lucas is like, well, I don't have to make this crappy low budget thing anymore. I can yeah. really expand it into this epic saga. And because he took his inspiration from the serials of the 1930s and 1940s. Yep. And the serials of the 1930s and 1940s were always 12 episodes long. It was a staple of them. Oh. They were 12 episodes. And that's why he selected, okay, Star Wars is going to be like a modern serial. Let's do 12 episodes. And it was arbitrary. It was just because the serials of, of the past were 12 episodes. So then they had to be, okay, crap, now <laughs> what, what kind of plan do we have now? And so if you look at um, – in, um, in Jonathan Rinsler's Making of Empire Strikes Back, yeah. which unfortunately came out after the book was published. My book was published, so I couldn't use that as a source. Um, there's many – like at one point, The Clone Wars was its own trilogy, and then there was another couple episodes because they hadn't called Star Wars Episode Four at that point. Yeah. So they weren't locked. They weren't locked into a certain number. Once he made it Episode Four, that means you can only make three prequels. So at that yeah. point, he bound himself to a prequel trilogy. But at one point, the prequels were like six films long, and then you got into the middle trilogy, and then there was a couple, and then there was a sequel trilogy, and then he also had. Um, I, but then it was always in flux. So what, what, he narrowed it down to nine films. I'm going to have a prequel trilogy, this middle trilogy, and then the sequel trilogy. And then the remaining three films will be like one-offs. So he said he wanted to make a film that was just about Wookiees. No humans, just Wookiees. And that's I think that's what became the holiday special. And he wanted to do another film that was just about droids. Just the main characters were all droids. It was kind of like Wally, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, and eventually... Those faded away, and he just settled on, okay, let's just do the nine. There, there can be like a kind of a logical story arc. Once he made Darth Vader into Luke's father in the, in the second draft of Empire Strikes Back that he wrote himself, that's when that plot point came in. Because in the first draft, Luke's Jedi father appears to Luke as a ghost on Dagobah, and he inducts Luke into the Jedi way, and he's like, avenge me. Um, well, and then in the second draft... He didn't like that draft. George Lucas was unsatisfied with that first draft. So in the second draft, he turns Vader into the father, and he's like, whoa, this totally changes the backstory now. I actually have material for a really dramatic three-film thing, because at that point, Empire Strikes Back was called Episode 2. So he's like, let's make the original Star Wars Episode 4, and then I can have this great three-film trilogy about how Luke's father falls to the dark side and mm. betrays his master and blah, blah, blah. That's like really juicy material. Yeah. And then... 
And then we can make another three that follows Luke as a mature Jedi. Okay, there we go. Nine films. And that's why all of a sudden one day they started saying, no, no, it's nine films. Oh, and that makes so much sense. And I love the way that you really break down by script and by date, even looking at, uh, you know, various interviews and stuff about that, that process, because I would say, frankly, that's the most significant change and development in Star Wars that makes it what it is today is yeah. that merger of those two characters where the father Skywalker figure becomes um, becomes Darth Vader. And that's, I think, where you sort of, you know, you're alluding to it earlier, where, you know, for us uh, prequel kids, you know, I remember 2004, 2005, the, the tragedy of, of, of Darth Vader Darth being Vader. used. Yeah. yeah. He said, oh, that's what it was called. It's like, no, <laughs> it was called Star Wars. Well, it, why? What was it? What was it that that in George's mind, at least digging through these interviews, that made him expand from what was essentially a sort of Flash Gordon serial adventure to this this character drama? Do you, at least as well, far as you can tell, what was that sort of aha moment of making this sort of a a character drama and and family epic? It was that moment. Um, so what happened was Lee Brackett, she's a very famous science fiction author, um, but she was very elderly at the time. Yeah. And she was George Lucas didn't know it, but she was dying of cancer. And she wrote the first draft, including that scene where, you know, the ghost of Father Skywalker comes and he makes Luke take the oath of the Jedi and then ducks him in the in the ways of the Jedi, him and Yoda, and then they have this ritual where they like salute lightsabers at each other and stuff. Um, and it wasn't that he didn't like that scene. It's just the tone of the draft. It's very much like um, a bit pulpy because okay. she was a pulp science fiction writer. Sure. Um, and and she died, right? She she submitted the first draft. And he's like, oh, I don't really like this that much, but you know, we can work on it. It's a first draft. You know, first drafts are always kind of rough. Uh, and then he called her up to discuss it, and someone else answers the phone, and they're like, Yeah, she passed away the other day. And he's like, Oh crap! And he didn't have a writer lined up. He's like, What am I? Like, I have a deadline here. So I can narrow it down when this change took place because he was forced to write the second draft himself. And him and his wife were supposed to take a vacation in like um, either Hawaii or Mexico. It was probably Hawaii because that's like his traditional vacation spot. Yeah, uh, I think it was over the Easter uh, long weekend or something like that. And while his wife was like, you know, on the beach and stuff, he was in his hotel room writing this thing by hand. So I think it was Easter of 1978. Um, and, uh, he writing it by hand, it just kind of, it, it was a way of like sort of solving redundant story threads in that, you know, Darth Vader killed Luke's father and he was also Ben Kenobi's student. And it's like, I don't know, it's something just clicked with him and he discovered basically the process of, uh, writing the original trilogy and then writing the prequels. He kept discovering, um, bit of drama that he had unintentionally built into the story already all they needed was a little bit of retconning to make them work and um, it just kind of it was just an organic unplanned process and he finished his draft and he's like yeah that's actually pretty good and that changes the backstory in even better ways than I thought in the first place. At that point Lawrence Kasdan when he came back from his vacation Lawrence Kasdan handed him the first draft of Raiders of the Lost Ark and he's like oh thank god I forgot about you you're a real writer. Here take over this draft. I'm not a good writer. Um, and then they slowly uh, re expanded it from, from that very crude second draft that he wrote. So, yeah, it's, uh, and I think fans can be forgiven, especially 
you know, of, of my generation uh, growing up where when you enter Star Wars now, you, you have that baggage of, of what Star Wars is now and what it's become. And if you watch mm-hmm. the original film, you know, you, you, it's the famous quote of like, you know, Darth Vader, young pupil of mine, before he turned evil, hunted down and destroyed the Jedi. Like, it makes perfect sense. You're like, well, yeah, it's got to be. It's, that's got to be it. But it is interesting how he sort of accidentally, and, and I don't mean that to short circuit his, his storytelling brilliance, but... but he did. He has this odd habit of sort of accidentally falling into this fantastic, dramatic story. In the in the film industry, they call those happy accidents. Yeah, that's fair. And it happens all the time. Well, and and, and I think yeah, we see that, and especially with franchises that the way they are now, the way they are now. But mm-hmm. it's it's it, you you talk a little bit. You sort of compared and contrasted briefly his process with the original trilogy versus the prequels. I, I kind of wanted to dig into that a little bit more on, like, um, with whether it's the story conferences that you talk about for Empire versus the uh, prequels, whether it's the other writers and the sort of informal uh, help that he had. Is it is it a fair characterization that there was some combination of Lucas, whether it's through lack of interest and abandonment, he didn't have his cadre of filmmaking, you know, film school friends helping him out, and also yeah, had, his unwillingness? Yeah, they had kind of drifted apart and become successful on their own, and yeah. they, they kind of... You know, when you're young, when you're in your 20s and early 30s, you can kind of collaborate with your buddies and work as a group. But then people's careers take them in their own directions and everyone just kind of drifted apart and did their own thing. Gotcha. Um, Some to success and some to not success. Like John Milius had a a successful early career, but then it kind of fizzled out. Um, So not everyone was a success. But uh, yeah, they all just became rich and famous in their own way and uh, just found a new sort of bunch of collaborators. Hmm. Well, and because I, I noticed that it just seems that there was a contrast in the way, because George seemed to really struggle with and, and be frustrated by the process of, of Empire Strikes Back, the the production, the budget, the mm-hmm. things running over time. And is is this overplayed? Like why he sort of retreated to kind of handling everything himself, you know, a la more control freak? Or or you think no. that's a fair criticism of, of the way he approached the prequels? He's he's always been a bit of a control freak, but I think back then he kind of um, was very much aware of his limitations. But he always wanted to have sort of final say. But when it came to writing and directing, he would admit, I'm not that good at it, so if someone else can do it, all the better. Um, I can come up with the ideas and sort of steer the ship, and someone else can do in what is in his mind the dirty work of writing and uh, directing, as long as he can kind of look over their shoulder and – you know, like sort of the way a producer would sort of guide the writing process, guide the directing process, but be sort of hands off about it. Just provide provide support, provide feedback, make sure it's not going off the deep end, basically. And um, an empire turned out way different than he wanted it to. And it kind of burned him. Like, it's not that it was like, I think he realizes that it turned out well, but mm. it's just different than he wanted. Um if you look at the prequels, if you compare the first draft of Star Wars from 1974 to um, Phantom Menace, they're very much cut from the same cloth. So that's kind of – Phantom Menace is sort of what George Lucas was closer to what George Lucas was going for with the first draft of Star Wars. And, of course, everyone that read it said, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> 
which is like if anyone had seen the script to Phantom Menace, like if you had to collaborate, they're like, no, nah, this doesn't work. You gotta, there's something in there, but you gotta rewrite it. Well, I gotta ask, what um, what were some of the similarities? Um, it's just very high fantasy, um, mm. very um, uh, very uh, elaborate. Lots of planets, lots of big, uh, huge sets, lots of tons of characters, lots of aliens, and lots of um, things that were things that would have been impossible. No matter how much money they had in 1977, couldn't have been done. You could have given them a hundred million dollars. It, it's just technically would not have been possible to do a lot of the things. Yeah. Um, you know, lots of creatures, more, more, it's more, more exotic. It's more like a, like a comic book or like a Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter of Mars type of thing. Um, if you're familiar with that, yeah. um, that's kind of the vibe I get. Um, and, uh, just over the course of getting feedback, it became more and more grounded and more focused on a limited number of characters, uh, that were initially very, very stiff. If you read the second draft of Star Wars, um, it's basically he had reconfigured it into closer to the storyline that we actually got, but the characters are terrible. The dialogue is like embarrassingly bad. But then over the next couple of drafts, getting more feedback, he reworked it and reworked it. And then the final draft, he had the dialogue uh, was rewritten, not all of it, but like probably like 30% of it was rewritten by his friends, um, uh, Gloria Katz and Willard Hike. They're married, actually. Um, but they're heard. professional writers, and they're good at writing snappy one-liners and stuff. They wrote American Graffiti. Well, and um, I, I know that so, so they, they made the dialogue more believable. And they, I they know gave, they were sort of part of that. A bit more uh, subtext as well. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we were working with a little delay here, but yeah, they, they, they were part of that original kind of crew that George famously mm-hmm. uh, came up with. Yep. Uh, I, I wonder. So as. Not only were George's ambitions about this uh, sort of grand saga of of stories that he could tell, the 12 episodes mimicking the the serials as as Star Wars became this huge success, Mm -hmm. there's the... I think probably to me the most fascinating part of the book that's that I, I haven't encountered because I'm familiar with with J W Rensler's book. I, I purchased them earlier this year as as a part of my ongoing kind of you know diving more into the behind the scenes of the original trilogy. Those books are fantastic. They I love are. Them. We had him. Um, we had him on the show a few weeks ago and 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 oh. talked a little bit about it. But it, there was this and 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 uh, Jonathan Rensler talked about it too. But there was this sort of dual ambition where the other part of George's development was this his his hatred of of hollywood as it was and mm-hmm. his contemporaries kind of seemed to share that sentiment and he had this grand vision of what would become skywalker ranch and and i think that becomes a part of what he wanted empire and jedi to be um and, and i was curious they, they were well he's got on record actually admitting like the main reason we're making star wars sequels is to pay for the ranch that's the main thing that's my goal and the Star Wars sequels, not that it, not that he was just in it for the money, but he's like, this is going to make that dream a reality. These films, because they're going to be successful. Well, and I know you, of all the guys who've who've really you know researched George through this time period, I, could you kind of paint that picture a little bit of what he was actually attempting to create and push for? Because now we just kind of look back and kind of see what what it was. But I I feel like a lot of us don't appreciate, you know, this this ethereal idea of a Hollywood North getting out of L.A. And having you know true independence with filmmaking, yeah. So, um, uh, like, I went to film school, and going to film school, you make a lot of friends, you make a lot of contacts, and stuff like that. And um, 
they all were like, you know, L.A. is kind of a scum city, you know, and it's all phony Hollywood. And, you know, they just didn't like the vibe. And so he was he they created um, American Zootrope initially. They tried to do this experiment, which is um, sort of like a filmmaker's club, basically, where they they rented like a, it was almost like a warehouse that they converted into an office uh, somewhere in the L.A. region. Um, and it was a bunch of filmmakers could drop in and hang one time. They'd have all these parties. Like one time Akira Kurosawa dropped by. <laughs> there'd be like, um, uh, who's the guy that did the Campbell's Soup artwork? Um, Andy, what's his name? Oh, I don't know. You know, I, I'm blanking on it, but I know who you're talking it's about. Anyway, they'd have all these like hippies and artists and they'd have all these wild parties and they'd get together and they'd collaborate and they'd make movies together. And they had their own equipment as well. And so the first film they made was THX 1138. That was like their premiere. Here we go. This is what we're all about. And everyone was like, what the hell is this? Like no one understood it. Mm. And the uh, they had a deal with, I think, Warner Brothers. Yeah, it must have been Warner Brothers uh, to do eight, I think, six or eight films or something like that. One of which was Apocalypse Now. Mm. And after the screening of THX, they canceled the deal. And, um, oh. and so – so that was the first attempt, and so but it fell apart, and partially because of George Lucas's fault. But it's really because the executives that they made a deal with, all, all they knew was Easy Rider was the biggest hit of all time, like the most profitable movie in history at that point. Yeah. And they're like, we don't we don't understand what these young people are doing. All we know is if you leave them alone, it makes money. And then they saw <laughs> THX, and they're like, I think maybe we were wrong about this. And so they canceled the deal, and. George decided he was going to move to um, the San Francisco area, and he was able to convince some of his close friends to come up there. And they were, with the profits of American Graffiti, they were able to set up, they were able to buy a second house that they used as an office. George lived around the corner, and uh, they called it Park House because it was on a street called Parkway, I think. Uh, I actually found the house on <laughs> Google Maps. It's still there. Um, but it was basically like an old huge like almost victorian style house and uh so matthew robbins had an office there uh walter murch had an office there um and other friends would drop by and stuff and they would they would write and it would the whole point was and george would go there and write and um you could you could check in on each other and share ideas because you're all in the same building basically yeah and it was in a residential neighborhood, so they weren't even sure if they could use it as an office. But, like, at San Francisco, no one cares. And they could walk down the street, and there was all these cafes down the street, and they could just hang out. And it was just this really good, like, almost like a film school environment. And um, and that was basically – George was like, well, why can't we do this, but, like, on a grand scale? And we'll have, like, a research library if you want to conduct research. And uh, we'll have, like, editing suites, and we'll have a high – tech uh sound mixing place which was skywalker sound and then uh, by the time he finished building it um so the profits of empire strikes back and return of the jedi were supposed to finance it which they did and by the time it was completed uh shortly after um uh, return of the jedi came out george lucas got divorced his friends went in different directions they weren't even in the bay area anymore and uh so it just kind of sat there unused with just it's just like for the benefit of George Lucas, like lonely and depressed by himself because he, he became depressed after he got divorced. Right. So, yeah, it was, it was a real dark time in his life. And like 
his dream that all this sacrifice, because he was like telling his wife, like, I know that this is like a crazy time right now, but don't worry. Once this is done, we can settle down and it'll be, we'll just reap the rewards of all this sacrifice. And so after all that sacrifice, it all came out to nothing. It became just his personal, uh, you know, filmmaking building yeah. thing. And that's why he became known as a recluse because, you know, so in order that now they had this great facility that they had to maintain the overhead for, but there was no clients coming in. So that's why they had to start farming out Skywalker Sound to other productions and stuff because just to pay the yeah. bills. Well, it's funny because you, you touched on it briefly. I actually, I have it on my notes that I wanted to ask you about because that's something understandably that's not talked about in any official um, you know, history of, of Star Wars or Lucasfilm because it's a it's a it's a real it's a personal tragedy. I you know, it's kind of what I'm sure will make an incredible like George Lucas biopic at some point when there's like a, a, um, a some <laughs> actually there was a, a a couple of producers that came to me that wanted to purchase the rights to the book because they wanted to make a story, a biography about George Lucas's life. And they're like the way you framed it like, I couldn't tell the story of the making of Star Wars without telling the story of George Lucas himself because mm. they're so intrinsically tied. And some, even some of the creative decisions he made because of personal things in his life. It wasn't necessarily he thought this was best for the story. It's just, you know, your personal life kind of informs the creative work that you do, right? Yeah, and it's one of those things where as, as he went through Empire and Jedi famously, it was... It was very taxing on on his on his health, on his family, uh, and and on his marriage. And and he he exited the original trilogy, and 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 I feel like people we just don't know this. Uh, I didn't know it until I I'd, I'd read the book where he, the the sort of dark times quote unquote of Star Wars, where Star Wars went away, where frankly Lucasfilm went away. That that was it coincided exactly when his his marriage fell apart. What he had tried to achieve to set up and then kind of have this fraternity of filmmakers uh, really kind of collapsed a little bit. And and I it's it's a very personally compelling but tragic story. And well, and to add insult to injury, um, the woman, the man that his wife left him for was one of the workers on Skywalker Ranch. He designed the stained glass for the library. Oh wow, and that's that that's that's Shakespearean poetry tragedy yeah. slash tragedy for you right there. Um, well, I think she was like kind of the interior decorator. Um, that was like her informal role because she had no work. She wanted to, she was waiting to start a family, so it was something to keep her busy. And I think that's how she ended up meeting him. Yeah, and it's it it is tragic. But what was the um, process where? the where Lucasfilm began to establish establish itself more when and where I don't know the um I'm trying to think of the best way to put it but where his vision kind of began to be fulfilled eventually coming out of the dark times as more and more films began to be produced there uh, because it is the incubator for so many incredible like, like ILM work for a lot of the films from the 90s onward um yeah, well, in the in the '90s, in the early '90s, um, Star Wars kind of made a comeback out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, in like 1991, mostly because of Timothy Zahn's um, *Hair to the Empire* trilogy. Yep. Uh, no one no one knew that there was this pent up demand for Star Wars because if you ask someone in like 1987, which was the 10th anniversary of the original film, about Star Wars, they'd be like, "Oh, that's like yesterday's news. We're all about Back to the Future and Ghostbusters and Top Gun and all that." with the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and stuff. Um, so it was kind of seemed like this passe thing. 
Um, and then all of a sudden it came back with a vengeance in the early 90s and it gave them a shot of money that was desperately needed. Um, and as a result of that, you know, they had been making, uh, you know, Last Crusade came out in 1989. And then uh, basically, like most of George Lucas's fortune was made from the merchandising. And so the main yeah. thing that came back in the early 90s was the merchandising. It was like a second wave of mer merchandising. And so that's why they were able to do Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. And George Lucas always had in the back of his mind that, like, you know, one day I would like to do the prequels. It was always something that he kind of – he had been kind of promising it vaguely, but he was like, I don't know. I don't know how sincere he was if he was like, well, if I change my mind, I can always do these other films. And that's, that's one thing that he – was a uh, part of his decision in around 1993 after he saw Jurassic Park and he realized, okay, I can actually make these prequels the way I want them to be now. And he had to have, he said he had to sit down and have a soul searching discussion with himself that he wanted to return to directing and his kids were old enough now that he didn't have to be, you know, his young, his youngest son was like four or five. Yeah. So he wasn't a baby anymore. So he could, he could afford to go back to directing. And he had to say to himself, do I want to direct these Star Wars prequels or do I want to go off and do all these other crazy ideas that I've developed over the years? And his decision was basically like he wasn't that financially independent at that time, not as much as he became. Like, I mean, I'm sure he was still a millionaire, but like it takes more than that to make a blockbuster movie. Yeah. And part of his decision was, no, Star Wars has never been hotter and now is the time, if I make these movies now, they'll make a million dollars. They'll make millions of dollars, and then I can use that money, and I can just make whatever I want after that. I don't, mm. I'll be so financially insecure. Or I can make these other crazy movies I want right now that probably are not going to be successful, and that'll be all the money. I just blew it all, and I'm going to be left with, you know, not that much in comparison. Um, so, you know, it was like the audience is there, and now... Now is the time to do it. The technology is there. The audience is there. My family's old enough. And so he decided to uh, to do it then. But, uh, yeah, it was mainly the uh, the merchandise that sort of kicked things up. And also uh, LucasArts as well had a really big, strong early 90s run. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We uh, we were just talking off air before the show about um, Knights of the Old Republic. I know that was a little bit later, but whether it was um, Shadows of the Empire and that whole publishing uh, there initiative. There was like X-Wing, TIE Fighter, X-Wing versus TIE Fighter. Mm -hmm. um, there was all those LucasArts adventure games, um, like The Dig and, uh, and the Full Throttle. There were some early ones from the early 90s that I'm forgetting. Uh, Maniac Mansion, I think, was another one. Um, so, yeah, and they were so desperate for money in the late 80s that they sold their computer division uh, off to Steve Jobs, and it became Pixar. <laughs> that's how desperate they were for money they sold pixar essentially yeah I, it, it does like that financial reality probably it had to play a role in 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 him kick-starting the production yeah yeah well because he, he knew it was like it was from a business perspective it was the smart thing to do and mm. the whole thing was he kept saying yeah i'm only making these movies so i can make these experimental movies ah. and then once once he once he finished the trilogy he just made more Star Wars and more Indiana Jones. <laughs> so, like, what? You're you're just full of hot air, it seems. Because he was saying that after, after American Graffiti came out, it was a very big commercial hit. He goes, now I'm gonna make these crazy experimental films. Because <laughs> that's what he's been saying he's, for he's, years. He's very uncomfortable with being associated with um, mainstream success because he wants to be considered an artistic experimental filmmaker. So Graffiti comes out. 
He's like, I'm going to make films more, more like THX, experimental weird films. But instead he made Star Wars, which you could say in some ways was experimental, but it's also very mainstream. And after that came out, he's like, well, I'm going to go back to my filmmaking roots and make experimental films. And then he said the same thing after Return of the Jedi came out. But he never did. And then he said the same thing during the prequels. And he never did. He just made the Clone Wars cartoon series. <laughs> and he made Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. And then he sold it all to Disney. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it is funny. Cause, and, and now he's saying that currently. He's like, I'm going to make my experimental films. Oh, he's uh, never going to make another movie ever again. He's done. Yeah? You think so? Yeah, he's done. Yeah. He, he, he might produce things. Like he'll attach his name and give him some money. But he'll, he'll never direct anything ever again. Yeah, it's like, ah, oh, it's that museum. Damn museum. He's like 75 or 80. He's too old. Yeah. If he was 55, I'd yeah. say, yes, he's going he's gonna to do something. He'll do at least one. It's, is it a tragedy? It's, it's weird. He, it's, it's the strangest guy. Like, like, like each time, it, it seems like he sort of hit the height of success, started Skywalker Ranch, like we talked about, and then his, the sort of personal tragedy it blacked out what may have been years of his most creative if he launched straight into the more star wars movies but just had other directors and they were all producing them at skywalker ranch and even as late as before the disney purchase i remember him um looking to expand property to to do seven eight nine himself that was something he considered right before before selling to disney uh, yeah, they moved um, uh, the head of Lucasfilm to was it the Presidio? Is that what it's called? I, I it was say, a new facility. Yeah, they out, they outgrew they outgrew their old headquarters basically. Yeah, I, yeah. It's it, but yet yet that that decade was lost, and then of course the through financial necessity and and, and you know and and creative drive as it's well. Personal. It wasn't like he was doing it just for the money. He sure. wanted to tell the story, but the money was the deciding factor. Yeah, and and it makes sense when you when you say it that way, and it and then he has this sort of parting of ways with well he he parts with, and I guess we'll kind of fast forward to today. Um, well, actually, you know, I have to. All right, sorry. Before I jump into the sort of transition as he leaves, you know, Star Wars permanently, and we've now been you know now five years post Disney films. Um, but I have to ask you about Revenge of the Sith. So the, the, the whole tragedy of, of Darth Vader, even by the time he was writing the script for Revenge of the Sith, that wasn't, as I was reading the book, I, I found it fascinating that that wasn't really fully solid on, on exactly how he was going to determine the fall of Anakin Skywalker. Well, basically, actually, just just, just jump back to your other point, because yeah. I have just one thing to add oh, yeah, yeah. about how, how uh, George Lucas, you know, he could have made all these really creative things, but he never did because he got trapped by star wars i think um francis coppola had a really good quote i'm paraphrasing it yeah but he said something like um star wars robbed uh filmmaking of one of the greatest experimental filmmakers that never was or something like that mm, yeah i mean it's hard to yeah, say it's anyway, not true yeah i'm um, going back to your point uh, oh yes the tragedy of darth vader um so the original conception of how anakin would fall to the dark side was sort of like in the original trilogy it was almost like it was like a drug like once you had tasted it you would be tempted by it and you'd go back to it over and over and you'd slowly lose your way and be corrupted yeah. by it when, once you go down um, that dark path like the yeah. so corrupted that it even, it even corrupted his flesh like that was sort of the idea behind why the emperor is like this withered old wizard guy it's because he was so powerful that with the dark side that had like destroyed his body. Um, 
And the original idea for Anakin, that was kind of his conception of the dark side at the time. It was like, and I think the setup was his massacre of the Tuscan Raiders. If you can do that, um, you know, what are you capable of? And you'll you'll go back to the well again and again, and slowly but surely, you'll slowly get corrupted. And it just it didn't work. It didn't work at all. He hadn't set it up properly. He hadn't communicated it properly. It wasn't. It was like so. It wasn't even subtle. It just like it wasn't really even there. Like if you were to explain to someone that, then you'd be like, oh, okay, I, I kind of see it. I, yeah, I, I guess I kind of see it. But um, and during the editing, he decided to take out a bunch of scenes, and all of a sudden, scenes that were never supposed to be next to each other were now next to each other, and it gave him, it gave a different context. And he started getting, oh, what if it's like this uh, Shakespearean thing where he tries to, he's convinced that his wife will die, and that was always there. That was always one part of it, mm. but it was like a minor part. But suddenly, when you took out all these other scenes to get the running time down, that point became more and more emphasis, uh, emphasized, and then when he went back for reshoots, all the reshoots are supporting that and bringing that to the forefront. So when he was editing it, again, just like when he turned Vader into the father, he found an element that was implanted in the story that was already there that he could take and run with and give uh, sort of a different context or a different flavor or a different subtext or however you want to describe it, a different trajectory to the storyline and to the character. Yeah, which raises a very bizarre question, because it's like if the only reason he's going to the dark side is to save his wife, so he's not corrupted by evil. It's just like a misplaced love almost. How do you go from that to like killing kids like ten seconds later? It's like that made sense when it was like he was so corrupted he could kill women and children in the Tuscan Raider camp. Well, you know, one more film down the line. He can kill human children now, right? So that I think that was his setup. Yeah. That, um, but it doesn't really. It's kind of very, very inconsistent. And he admits that he's like, you know, I have a. He doesn't really uh, mention that scene specifically, but he's like, you know, after he turns to the dark side, there's a really hard left turn, and it's kind of hard to swallow now. But I think the film, even though that I, I believe he's referring to the scene where he kills the kids. Um, but he's like, but the the storyline it just it makes more emotional sense the way it is, even though there's some things that are a bit weird because it was kind of like the film was totally broken apart and then stitched back together and then expanded again with reshoots. So it's almost like the final draft was written in the editing room. It's interesting, yeah. And it, I I had no idea because you would think you know you're coming in on the sixth film and what at the time was the final Star Wars film. Um, that 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 would have been more solidified, and and to me, that's an example of where the the final story I think works better, even though it's a little clunky in the editing room. I'll I'll be the first to admit that the the sort of poetry of him, his desire to to almost possessively keep Padme, is 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 what you know directly makes him responsible. He himself responsible for losing her. Um, when mm-hmm. he force chokes her in the final scenes, you're, you're like, dang. So like you, you know, you're going to Yoda and then Palpatine trying to figure out how to save Padme. Um, but, but yeah, see, it, you know, a thing, a, a scene like that, that made more sense when it was sort of like, he's slowly getting more corrupted and he's slowly losing his mind to the point where he, he's choking his wife. Like he never would have even thought of that, you know, at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And so, um, so that makes more sense when you consider the original sort of motivation. It makes less sense when 
I, I don't. I don't like. I mean, it doesn't really stand out that much to me as an inconsistency. Like you kind of go with it, but um, once once you know the sort of behind the scenes, you can kind of see where the original hmm. motivation was and where the rewritten one comes in. Sure. Yeah, and I, and I'm sure the next time I'm watching Revenge of the Sith, it'll it'll play a little differently for me, um, mm-hmm. because of that. And it's but it is it's it's a really fascinating way. And I and I think, and I'll be honest, in, sometimes the book Michael like comes a, across in, a, in an exposing form of like because of George's tendency to sort of maybe intentionally or maybe unintentionally rewrite history and 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 rewrite what his intentions were at the time. I I think sometimes we as fans just forget how messy the storytelling process is. Yeah. Um, the one thing that becomes abundantly clear when you um, uh, examine the writing of the prequels, you know, he legitimately had most of the story written out, but he really only had enough story for like one movie at the most, like barely one movie. Hmm. And so like, but he had numerically bound himself to a trilogy. And so that's why what you discover is that, Basically, episode one is totally made up from scratch. There's nothing about it is from the original uh, ideas he had. It is totally 100% made up from scratch. Not a single thing in there is from the original storyline he had in his head. He never even really wrote it down. And episode two, the only thing that that really uh, he had is that uh, Palpatine uh, manipulates his way into becoming the chancellor or into becoming from the chancellor to creating a, an army for himself and staying yeah. in power using – emergency powers and Anakin, you know, starts falling to the dark side and starts clashing with uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. That's it. <laughs> All that's, and the clone wars, I guess are there somewhere. He didn't really know what the clone wars were that much. Yeah. It's like very vague. Um, and that's about it. So he, he kind of just made it all up as he went. I think he kind of assumed that the story would kind of write itself. Cause he's like, yeah, I've had this story in my head for, you know, 25 years or whatever. And yeah. then he's like, "Oh no, I, I don't have enough. I have enough material for episode three, and even then, I'm going to have to expand it a little bit." Yeah. So I think he was uh, a, a bit of a pain in the butt for poor Rick McCallum as he was, as they were waiting for the scripts to come in on time. Man, man, that guy is like a miracle worker. Man, he's he's such a good producer. I know people criticize him because he's a yes man, and he is. But if he wasn't a yes man. George Lucas would have fired him and got someone who was. He wanted someone that wasn't going to challenge him creatively. Uh, he wanted someone that would make the production run smooth because George is the boss. He's the one with the money, right? He's the one paying your salary. So just do what he says. Yeah. Um, and actually, by the time they got to Revenge of the Sith, McCallum had kind of figured out how to subtly sort of prod Lucas into like better directions. Like he he insisted on getting an acting coach for um, Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman, because he's like, they're young, um, and they need a capable director. Like Natalie Portman, she's terrible in the prequels, but in other movies, she's fantastic because she's dependent on the skills of her director. Uh, Give her a poor director, you get a poor performance. Give her a good director who can work with actors, he can they can pull a great Oscar-winning performance out of her. And especially back then, she was like a teenager, right? So yeah. she needed a strong guiding hand and lucas just wasn't that person so by then mccallum was like all right um we're gonna do a lot of rehearsals and we're gonna work with this acting coach and that's why i think the performances in revenge of the sith are like you compare it to attack of the clones it's like night and day almost it's it really still not is exactly great performances but it's noticeably improved 
It is. I mean, frankly, that's uh, Revenge of the Sith for the longest time was my favorite Star Wars film, uh, primarily because of the the way the drama plays out, especially in that final act. Like you see Hayden Christensen's performance as he loses Padme and embraces the dark side. Like he's even though it's kind of choppy in the editing and the motivation is is could have been clear in some ways by nature mm-hmm. of the way the story developed, he still sells it and he does a, a brilliant job doing it. Yeah. And especially if you look at um, throughout, the, like, what's the most consistent performances across the films? Probably Ian McGregor and Ian McDermott, I'd say, right? Like, yeah. they're they're never bad. I mean, Ian McGregor in, in The Phantom Menace doesn't really have a whole lot to do. But, um, but they're older, experienced actors. So when the director is not there to guide them, they're like, don't worry, we can direct ourselves because they have the experience and the talent. But the younger stars... They don't. They don't have enough experience. Like Hayden Christensen was like nineteen. Uh, Natalie Portman was fourteen when they made Phantom Menace. Like they didn't have the experience to self-direct. So that's why their performances are mm. like kind of choppy in places until you get to Revenge of the Sith, where they're at least kind of consistently good. Um, and that's I, I credit that to the acting coach. They had weeks of rehearsals before they began filming. You know, you say that it kind of reminds me of of Alec Guinness in the original because his performance stands out so much. Versus or Peter Cushing. Yeah, exactly. It, they, like their performances, uh, and it's funny because, of course, years later he was all he was a little bitter about Star Wars overshadowing his his illustrious career. But it is like he legit. A lot of that's because of how great of his performance was in it. Well, if you look at his early interviews and like, um, you know, reports of like what he was like, he was totally on board with it and thought it was a good movie. He's like, yeah, this is like a cool fairy tale. It's like positive for young people. It's an interesting role. I've never been in a production like this. And he was and he thought he he had seen American Graffiti and was very impressed with George Lucas. So he he was very much positive about it. And then once it came out and it kind of, yeah, like overshadowed him. That's when he was like, oh, it's rubbish, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, very in a very British way, <laughs> we yeah. must admit. Um, yeah, man, I dude, I could talk to you all night, but I I, I really appreciate you shining some light um, on the podcast and uh, about some of the incredible stuff. I, if you haven't, I, I will take a moment to say, seriously, go go purchase yourself a copy, whether it's Audible, whether it's on Amazon. Uh, Secret History of Star Wars. I, I can't recommend it enough. I have been on the show uh, recommending it. Some of our Patreon supporters have, have been talking about it as they've picked it up. And and it's just, no, I've, I've loved it, man. And I, I have to kind of ask, maybe as a, a, a parting shot here, um, I want to kind of get your take on, as someone who's really delved in, on, in the deep end of the production of Lucasfilm in the George Lucas era, what what's the deal? <laughs> that's that's the question I have. What's the deal with the Disney era? Like it's it's fascinating to me. The we thought there was division in the prequel era. Uh, I actually don't know like where you stand personally on what you think of the various Disney films, but but what what do you think are some of the biggest differences that you've observed just as a fan as Star Wars changed hands to the Disney Corporation versus when George ran things? Um well one could argue that, oh, they, they didn't have a long-term plan. They're making it up as they go. But at the same time, all the star, all the George Lucas Star Wars films, the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy, they were all made up as they went too. And any plan they made proved to be temporary because it was always changing. Yeah. Um, so there was, never was a plan from the beginning that was followed through um, other than the fact – yeah, I mean it was always in flux. So that's – but I think for – 
for the um, for the sequel trilogy, they needed to they needed to make a plan and stick with it, and that's the biggest problem that people have. It's like Force Awakens going one way. Oh, Last Jedi is going another way. Oh no, here comes Rise of Skywalker. It's not only is it going in a different direction than Last Jedi, it's even going in a different direction than Force Awakens hinted that because now Snoke is dead and Luke is dead and blah blah blah. So they needed, uh, and then they've been hiring people, firing people. This project's on. This project's canceled now. Now we have a new one. It just seems like they're schizophrenic or something. And I don't blame Kathleen Kennedy for that because I think a lot of those decisions are coming from the top above her, from people higher up than her, like oh, whoever's running Disney. Yeah. And they're saying, no, we need this. We need diversity. And I think she's like on board for a lot of that. But I, I would blame the Disney bureaucracy. Uh, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. And um, But they should they, – they really need to plan long term and stick with it because these films don't make themselves. And I can't believe they don't take a, a, a hint from Marvel and that they had a long term plan. And yeah, I'm sure the individual films, they sort of made up some things, but they sort of knew where they were going in the end. They knew it would end in Infinity War and Endgame. Yeah. Um, and they knew how to get there. So, if, like, you know, they say, like, oh, how do you write a good uh, mystery novel? Well, you write the ending and then you figure and then you trace backwards. Right. To, to, so you can. Yeah. So, you know, where you're going. Um, and I think I think that's the the biggest flaw that they have, because, you know, what? like the one offs like Rogue One was good. I liked it. Um, Solo. I was preparing to hate it, and then I was like, oh, it's actually pretty decent. I, I thought it was like a fun kind of small-scale Star Wars film. I, aged, I would like more of that. It's aged well. Yeah, it's a fun watch yeah. on Disney+. Plus. Even though it made no money, no one went to see it, I was like, wow, <laughs> it's, it's, I was expecting a train wreck, and it was like pretty decent. Yeah. Is it, it's, it's kind of funny. Would you say it's fair to say that Star Wars is, has in some ways fallen victim to the very elements of of big hollywood productions that george lucas hated so much in the beginning yeah in some ways like it's part of a mega it's part of the biggest movie corporation in the world Mm. you know it's but i mean yeah you could say that but at the same time like the merchandising machine of star wars has been there from the beginning it's always been about making money making toys selling toys what else can we sell them comic books novels Stickers, underoos, shampoo, put Star Wars name on everything. Um, so yeah. that's all. I mean, if you accuse Disney of selling out and selling Star Wars, well, look at the holiday I mean, special. Look at the million cartoons. Like the Ewok cartoon sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen it. I'm. There's a lot of there's a lot of junk Star Wars products <laughs> that they were just putting out there as a shill. It's, right. So that's always been part of it. You can't say, oh, George Lucas had integrity, and then he's like altering the films and saying no i was i was intended for han to shoot for second or what it's like uh like i george lucas ruined star wars before disney did it's just like <laughs> i mean people have been complaining about so-and-so ruining star wars since return of the jedi well i mean yeah and listen as a as a longtime star wars apologist and a kid of the prequel generation i'm the one who like you know what i kind of like everything george did and and i but i sort of see all of the flaws especially the prequels when you look at george lucas kind of striking out on his own and 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 
you know, writing yeah. the scripts themselves. Like you see those flaws there, but there's still to me a, a magic uh, in those films. And frankly, I think there's some magic in some of the Disney era films. I love pretty much most of the Disney films. They each have their flaws. Certainly, I really like do. The Last Jedi, and I know a lot of people are like, oh, you, I immediately <laughs> discount everything you said before that. And now, like, it's, everything it's you said in the interview so far. Uh, yeah. No, but you know what? There, there's only two great Star Wars films. A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. They're great. 